0: Okay, so as we jump into tonight, I want to say just a huge shout out to those students that preached last Wednesday. So Maisie and Kyan. Kyan, I think, is out with uh, helping with the bell choir um, for Christmas Eve right now practicing. But can we give a huge round of applause to Kyan and Maisie? Maisie's back running pro presenter today. Um, They did an incredible job, and um, I would encourage you, if you have not um, listened to that, maybe you missed last Wednesday and you would like to hear that sermon, uh, you can go to our sermon podcast on Spotify. If you type in Bethel YTH, you will find us there, and you can listen to that sermon and any past sermons um, in the sermons to come. All right, so I want to tell you one thing. How many of you guys, uh, just by a show of hands, maybe use the Version Bible app? Just by a show of hands. Okay, so there's a few of you guys. Um, so there's something that you'll notice is slightly different about the way that we... Oh, it's not on there today. There's nothing on there. Okay, um, well... We'll talk about it next week when it is there. Basically, we're not going to be using the Bible app to run all of our full-on notes. So we'll talk about that later. Okay, so let's just jump into the passage then. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Um, but I want, to, I want to kind of set this up. I want to set up what we are going to be talking about. Um, we all have internal motivations. So, we all have internal motivations for um, what keeps us going in a specific direction. Um, Like, no matter what, there are things um, that we have placed in our lives lives that guide us, that direct us, and um, uh, like help us, and they cause us to react and to live in a certain way. Um, some of these things um, are in place because of our experiences, um, the, the the way that we've been raised, the things that we've experienced in life, um, whether they are good or bad. And oftentimes, um It's the things that we adapt, the things that guide us and direct us, and uh, inform the way that we act. A lot of times, it's our parents or our guardians or the most influential adults in our life are the people that put those things into place. Um, Maybe you can think of some. Maybe you can think of some things that your parents have taught you, and that's the way that you view a certain topic, the way that you view um, an issue in the world. Or maybe it's simply um, following Jesus. Maybe it's simply attending church. Maybe for you, um, your parents uh, force you to be here on a Wednesday night, or they force you, some of you are nodding your heads, and they force you to be here on a Sunday, and maybe for you, it's like, I don't have that personal conviction yet. Maybe I see some of the importance, but it hasn't been one of those things that kind of drives me, and I don't value it as, as maybe as much as my parents. Um, but I want to ask you the question, um, have you ever asked yourself this, why do I think the way that I think? Uh, why do I do what I do? And oftentimes when you ask this question and when you answer this question, they reveal to you what you value the most. Um, I wanna spend our time discussing something important to us um, as a youth group and as a church. Um, So as a church, we have adopted a list of things that define us. And this list is what we use as a filter to make sure that we are fulfilling the mission that God has laid out for not just our local church, but for all believers around the world. And it's found in Matthew 28. And this mission is very, very simple. It's to preach the gospel to all people, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach those people to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And so there are this this list of things that we have adopted as a church that help us stay on that mission. If you've ever been in the fireside room, which most of you people or most of you guys have it's just on the other side of this wall if you look on the walls in the fireside room you will see a bunch of canvases with a bunch of big words on them Um, not like they're complicated words they're just literally big Um, and those are the core values of our church Um, and what we believe is that Jesus is the center of everything that we do and because of what Jesus has done He is central to everything that we do as a church. And because of this, because of what Jesus has done, um, the Christian church has placed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus at the center of who we are. Um, And we do this because the central theme of scripture is the redemptive work of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about being Jesus-centered. Like, what does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as individuals to be Jesus-centered? I want to give you just a short kind of working definition. It's this. All we are and everything we do should reflect who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So you can see that this working definition places Jesus at the center of everything. Um, But this statement presents a few questions. The first one is this. Who is Jesus? Does Jesus deserve to be at the center? And if so, why should Jesus be at the center? And here's the thing. These questions have been asked for a long time. Like if you yourself are asking this question right now, or maybe you have asked this question in um, the past, Um, just know that these are questions that have been processed for centuries. It's not just something that we are asking in in the year 2022. And what I want um, to do tonight is to obviously validate your questioning, but also to, um, to bring clarity and understanding to who Jesus is and his importance to us as humans. And what we're going to do is we're going to primarily look through Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and then we are going to look through a couple sentences in Colossians chapter 1. So, as we are, if you haven't turned to Romans chapter 5, please turn there. As you're doing that, I want to give you a bit of context. Um, this letter that we have, that is the book of Romans, um, it was written by a man named Paul, and um, he was a devout and esteemed Jewish teacher in the first century. Um, he viewed Jesus. Jesus, though, as a threat to Judaism, and he tried to kill the message of um, Jesus by murdering Christians, people who were called the followers of the way, and uh, long story short, He would later have a radical encounter with Jesus. His life would be turned from killing Christians to being appointed by God to preach and to minister to Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles meaning non-Jews. And throughout his life, he travels throughout the Roman Empire. He travels throughout all these different countries and regions, and he was preaching the gospel, and he was planting churches. And during all of this, he wrote a series of letters to these different churches and different leaders. um, And he was addressing questions that they had um, and bringing clarity to the gospel of Jesus. And so the book of Romans is one of those letters. And it was written relatively late in Paul's life. And um, the church in Rome, as we know, if we read in Acts chapter 18, we read a little bit about the church in Rome. It existed for a while, and it comprised of Jewish in non-Jewish Christians. And an interesting fact, Emperor Claudius, the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, he expelled all Jews from Rome. And But then about five years later, he invited these Jews back to Rome. And so when these Jewish Christians came back to Rome and they came back to the church community that they were a part of, it didn't look very like, quote, Jewish anymore. It looked very non-Jewish. And so this caused a lot of tensions. And so this letter was a essentially a response to the tension um, in that church community and is is the fullest account of the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So with that background and with that context, I want to invite my friend Carson to come to the front. Would you stand with us as we read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 in the New International Version? Can you give Carson a hand? There you go.
1: were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having, how much more having been reconciled shall be saved through his life, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation,
0: awesome, thanks Carson, this is the word of the Lord, you may be seated. So if you were to read this passage that Carson, so. Such beautifully read. Um, If you were to read it a few different times and kind of give it a one-sentence summary, it could be this. Jesus' death on the cross made way for us to be saved from the wrath of God because of our sins. So if you're taking notes, I would highly encourage you to either take a picture of that um, or write that down in your journal, like your paper notebook, or in the notes app on your phone, because I believe that this encompasses what Paul is saying in these few verses. So in verse 6, let's walk through it. Verse 6, um, Paul says that we were powerless. He says that we were powerless when Christ died for us. And interesting, there's this word we. It says we were powerless, and this we is all encompassing. The we does not just mean uh, the church in Rome, while it does include the church in Rome, the the we includes Paul in that, but the the we also includes us as humanity. Us maybe two over two thousand years later, this is this we still applies to us. The powerlessness Paul is referencing is our inability to save ourselves from the wrath of God and our sins. We sang about it um, in the song, Grace Alone, so beautifully laid out that we were powerless, we are powerless to save ourselves on our own. And in Mark 2, Jesus said that he was the one that would save people from their ungodliness and sin. So we have to ask a really basic question. Who is Jesus? So if Jesus is, is to be central to everything and everything that we are, everything that we exist to do, who is Jesus? So if we look to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 uh, through 17, it says this. First Corinthians, or Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says, the sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So there's just one point that we see in Romans chapter 5 and Colossians 1, that Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullness of God. And this, um, these couple phrases that are sentences that we read in Colossians chapter one, um, it has a lot of phrases, um, a lot of interesting like imagery. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It says that he's the firstborn over all creation. And it says in him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And we're not going to get into, deeply get into all of these different things These different phrases, but if you want to look up these different phrases, you can study Genesis 1, Exodus 40, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 68, and Proverbs 8. Um, But there's some pretty incredible truths in these sentences, but what we are going to focus on tonight is this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1 verse 15. Um, So what Paul is beginning to do, he's beginning to unpack that Jesus is God's true image. That he is the full character of God in human form. And the, and the Greek word that's translated image is this word icon. And this word expresses two ideas in the original Greek. It, it um, expresses likeness, meaning image on a coin or a reflection in uh, a mirror. But it also has this other kind of meaning where it's the manifestation, the nature and character are reflected in that thing. So Jesus would be a reflection, according to Paul, of the nature and being of God. And it was actually no accident that uh, Paul used the word icon, Uh to explain whom Jesus was representing. If Paul meant to describe Jesus as like like God or having characteristics um, like God, um, there is actually a different word in the Greek for that. Paul would have most likely used the word hemoyema, which means resemblance or almost to equality or identity. I want to illustrate it this way. Think of a doppelganger. Does everybody know what a doppelganger is? Okay, so a doppelganger is, it's like a person that looks similar to another person, like they almost look like the same person, but you can tell that they're not the same person. So I have some celebrity doppelgangers here. This is um, Dax Shepard and Zach Braff. I don't really know who these people are, I just Googled it. So it's like... I know, I don't really watch stuff. So it's like, you can tell that they're different, right? You can tell that they're not the same person. But if if one of those were in a movie and you're not a huge movie buff, you could easily kind of, like, replace one for the other. Uh, the other one is Jason Statham. Does everybody know who Jason Statham is? Okay, the guy on the left is some rando. Like, that's not Jason Statham, but the guy on the right is. So you can see how it's just, like... You can see how like they're very similar, like face structure, everything, but it's not the exact image. Okay, what's the next one? Katy Perry and Zoe Deschanel. This one's kind of trippy, isn't it? Like these are two different people, um, but they look extremely similar. So this is what the definition of a doppelganger is. So it's it's like they look like this other person, but it's not the exact reflection. Obviously, because they're two different people. So if we look at a picture of, you know, uh, Katy Perry, now I'm like confused on which one is which. Katy Perry's on the left, right? I keep, I keep, okay, it's on the right. I literally can't tell the difference now. So if we look at the picture of this actual person, that is the icon. So that is the exact imprint of that person. Uh, a doppelganger could be described as Homoyama meaning a resemblance or almost to equality or identity. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that the glory and character of God are revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so using this stronger word of icon communicates to us that Jesus is God just as God is God. I know that this is big, and I, but I hope this is making sense. So the person of Jesus that we read about um, in scripture is the exact imprint of God the Father. And so to know God, we look at Jesus. Why? Verse 15, because it says that Jesus is the image. Remember, icon, the exact imprint of the invisible God. So the exact imprint of God was murdered on a cross by the very people that he came to save he was murdered because people hated him. And it's interesting for us, we use this word hate all the time, don't we? We scroll through uh, social, um, we watch the news. I don't know if anyone watches the news. I don't watch the news, but some people I'm sure watch the news. Maybe your parents watch the news or whatever. Um but like you scroll through social media and maybe you see a person's profile pop up, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I hate that person so much! Like they're so mean, they're so rude." Like, uh. but it's so crazy how um, murder is never on our mind when we come across those people. Right. We might exaggerate and be like, oh, I wish that person didn't live. We make these jokes. But the reality is we most of us will never go to that place. And it's kind of this exaggeration. The crazy thing is, though, that these people hated Jesus so much. They hated his his teaching, who he represented, where he came from so much that they murdered him. If you look at Matthew 12, John 2, Luke 7, Mark 3, there are a few examples of the people who opposed Jesus and wanted him killed because of his claims, like because he threatened the Jewish religious leaders' authority. His healing and other miracles just simply outraged the Jewish leaders. He was a threat to their religious systems. He was a threat to their way of life, and the list could go on and on. But through all of this, Jesus's mission remained the same, to tangibly show people the true kingdom of God and calling people to repentance and dying for the world's sins. The other crazy thing is, is that Jesus died for the sins of the people that were plotting to kill him. He died for the people that did kill him so that they could have an experience, a chance to have an experience with God. And so if we look back to our original text in Romans 5, we see that this sacrifice is the perfect definition of love. Verses 6 and 8, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the person of Jesus, um, who was perfect and complete, Scripture says he was lacking nothing. He humbled himself, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, to the point of death so that no one could would experience a life that is not in unity with God. And so at the point in this sermon, as the point as we look through this text, a valid question would be, who falls into this category of being powerless? Who falls into the category of ungodly and sinners and needing to be saved by Jesus? And we would love to create lists of people that don't include us. You know, we always think about it's these people, it's these people. But the simple answer is this, everyone. Everyone was powerless and ungodly and sinners needing to be saved by the grace of Jesus uh, Paul would write earlier in Romans in chapter 3, verse 23, he's, he made this claim for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Greek and Hebrew word for sin means to fail or to miss the goal. And this wasn't just like a spiritual word. Like, you won't just find the word, the Greek and Hebrew words for sin, just in, like, holy writings. Like, it was a very common term to describe, uh, like, getting lost, missing the mark, or, like, missing a destination. But spiritually, where we find sin or missing the mark entering humanity is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve's sin was they were failing to trust God's provision and wisdom, and they took that upon themselves. And from then on, we fail to reach the goal of honoring God and other humans. And maybe you're familiar with the Bible, and maybe you're familiar with things within the Bible. You might have heard of the Ten Commandments, but this was like a—the Ten Commandments were like this Jewish code of conduct. And even these Ten Commandments, like, they reflect this— Uh, It's kind of like half of them identify ways that we can fail at loving God and the other half identify ways that you can fail at loving people. And so Genesis 2 describes how every human is created in the image of God and is to be a reflection of the creator. And when we don't treat one another as an image bearer of God with the honor that they deserve, we sin by failing that person and we fail God. And sin is not just a small thing. Like, sin is a really big deal. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament describes our sin as putting us in a place of darkness and separation from God. Because God is holy and and blameless. And so with all of this dreariness, all of this darkness, like, it brings up a really good question. Like, what is the remedy for sin? Like, what is the fix for our sin in our life? the remedy for sin is Jesus's death, life, death and resurrection. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 it details out how Jesus did not fail to love God or people. Therefore, he did not sin. And he took upon he took upon himself our failure to give us the opportunity at new life. And because of Jesus's perfect life, because of his death And because of his resurrection, verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 1, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So this makes the conclusion of Romans chapter 5 even more beautiful. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we were dead in our sins, but Jesus bridged the gap between our sins and God's holiness at just the right time. And because of his death and because of his resurrection and defeating death, we have the opportunity to once again live in unity with God, not bound by our sin, but living in the freedom of grace and forgiveness. So what must we do to be saved? Romans chapter 10, um, it says this, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and you are justified, believing that the grace of Jesus covers your sin and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and you are saved. And so as we bring this text to a conclusion, as we bring this sermon to a conclusion, how do we summarize this whole thing? How do we bring this and put like this bow on it? I think it's this, um, it's we are Jesus centered because what he has done is necessary for redemption and brings hope to all people. And I'm going to pray in just a second, and if you maybe would say to yourself, Taylor, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Maybe you've been attending on Wednesday nights, and maybe you've been coming for months or even years, and you have yet to to give your life to Jesus, to ask for forgiveness, to repent of your sin, and to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. I wanna invite you to do that tonight. Um, Romans 10 is simple. It says to profess that Jesus is your Savior and to repent of your sin and make him the Lord of your life. And so I wanna pray, and if you want to make that decision while I'm praying, feel free to do that in your minds or in your heart or outwardly. Um, And also, maybe you have questions and you're just like trying to process, what it like means on a daily basis to um, surrender your life to Jesus, and you want to ask your small group leader um, some questions about that, um, I would encourage you to do that also. But let's pray together, and then we'll go into our small groups. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. It is by your grace and grace alone that we are saved. It's not by anything that we can do on the outside. It's nothing um, that we can accomplish that will earn um, forgiveness. But Jesus, it's your life, your death, and your resurrection that gives us that ability to have a right relationship with God the Father. And we thank you for that. And I pray for every student that's here that's maybe processing whether or not that they wanna surrender their life to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw their heart to the Father. I pray that they would have this conviction and this pull to surrender their life to the work of Jesus and to repent of their sin and to live for you. And so I pray over our small groups. I pray that as we have discussion and as we talk about these different things, um, would you guide those conversations? Would you help us to walk away from this room as a changed and different person? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go to our small groups. Um, Guys are in the back of the room. Girls are in the front. Um, High school is on this side of the room. Middle school is on this side of the room. And uh, your small group leader will dismiss you when you are done.